the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to bring back to uh, the show one of my favorite uh, social scientists and I think one of the country's most important public intellectuals, Professor Wilford Riley, professor of uh, political science at Kentucky State University, author of uh, numerous books from The Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, to Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. And if I'm not mistaken, one in the pipeline coming out soon, if it's not already out, lies my liberal teacher told me. Professor, is that out yet or on its way out? That sounds fun. No, that that book is going to drop this upcoming July with uh, HarperCollins. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I bet it was fun to write. Yeah, it's it's an entertaining book. I mean, it's it's a direct response to a lot of. I mean, there's obviously a famous book called Lies My Teacher Told right. Me, which is written from the pretty far left, mid nineties or something like that. I think something like that. Yeah. yeah, and there there are a bunch of. I mean, the sixteen nineteen project has yeah. a curriculum <laughs> part of which is titled America's Lies. Yeah. There's Howard Zinn. Yeah. Um, you know, America, the people's history of the United States. And that stuff may have had a role in, I mean, for then, the 60s or the 70s, when people were getting that sort of jingo traditional education. Yeah. But the reality is that, I mean, the Howard Zens, if you look at higher education, have been in charge for, you know, 50 years. Yeah, that is the establishment now, as we say, right? So now it's time to to look at how they've done. I mean, so if they're saying, well, there there wasn't a communist threat during the 1950s, the Red Scare, quote unquote, or if they're saying, you know, Native Americans were peaceful and there was a murderous genocide, not a war with great bravery on both sides. I mean, it, there's now a chance for people to look at those claims and say, well, this, a lot of this seems like nonsense. Yeah. So that's that's essentially what the book does. I look at a lot of the modern claims in sort of public ed, higher ed, and some some of it is fun with feminism and so on. Oh, I bet. I bet. I, I can't wait for it to come out. I hope uh, I hope we can uh, spend some time on it when it does. And uh, of course, yeah. and uh, that 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 that'll be great. I was talking. I forget with whom I was speaking yesterday about that sixteen nineteen project kind of history rendering of history. And I was recalling, you know, I, I, I think I was raised on what might be called the traditional textbooks in history and, and you know, that the stuff that kind of preceded. Howard Zinn, really. Um, they were Henry Steele Commager and, uh, oh, the Librarian of Congress. I'm trying to think of his name, um, not Leon Botsty. Anyway, I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. But, the, you know, those histories, Professor, my sense was uh, they weren't that they, – they, they, they didn't require a lot of revision. Uh, they didn't require a total upsetting of the tables. I mean, I knew – most of what 1619 was writing about from reading their books. Daniel Borston is who I was thinking of. I, I actually knew most of this stuff. Um, I, I don't know what your sense of that, of that older version, that more standard version of history before Zinn came along was like, but it seemed to me it was pretty good stuff. That was my sense. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that, in fact. I mean, so I think that... The presentation of someone like Howard Zinn or Nicole Hannah-Jones yeah. is that they are a brave rebel 
that is taking down kind of the conservative mainstream apparatus that's out here telling lies. Yeah. But the reality is that, I mean, when you talk about Borstein, who's one of the, the better historians in the world, right. and there are a few in England that are comparable, you're talking about liberal yeah. or center-right guys that are good in their field that are just kind of telling the truth. So what you actually had was sort of normal history that was maybe a little too jingo that was then, quote-unquote, disrupted by hacks who taught nonsense for a long period of time. And now you're seeing people, I mean, like, I'm I'm not bad. I mean, you're seeing Victor Davis Hanson, Neil Ferguson. I mean, you're seeing people come back and say, well, this this is a new take on this. But, like, one example from the book that I look at, like, traditionally... People have always thought we knew what happened during the wars between the Spaniards and the Aztecs. Okay. Like, you know, great savagery on both sides, the Aztecs ate people, so on. And we we thought we knew this because both cultures had writing. Yeah. So there, there are whole books about this, like the conquest of Mexico. Sure. And for a while in the 70s, it became sort of polite to say, well, no, no, the Spaniards were white, so they uh, had to be lying. Uh, uh, uh. You know, how would they how would they have known that, like, the bones they saw scattered all over an altar came from humans? They could have come from deer or llamas or something. (laughs) So there there was this revisionist history from kind of Mesoamerican scholars who obviously didn't want to say, like, yeah, our grandfathers were cannibal soldiers that narrowly lost a war. Right. And this became kind of accepted until very recently, as Mexico moves toward first world status. Yep. They've started sending out archaeologists yep. to dig yep. where Tenochtitlan used to be, and they found all the stuff. Like, yep. they found the towers of human skulls. And right, a lot of so islands. Know, a lot of islands. Yeah, we, we now know the original story was completely accurate. Like, we found the throne of skulls the Aztec emperor used to sit on and so on. So it, the idea that the original story was pretty much just accurate is becoming more and more evident across more and more fields. And that's one of the things that I touch on. Yeah, good for you. I'm glad because I hate to lose those guys in that history because it was so I, – I, I thought of it, it was classic. I thought it was good. Your, your, your Borstons and Commagers, they were New Dealers, you know? I mean, these guys, you know, Franklin Roosevelt New Dealers, they, they weren't, you know, they, they, it wasn't as if that they, they were trying to impose upon us some kind of right wing. Now, I guess, I mean, there are parts of the country where certain things were diminished or certain aspects of our history were less emphasized than others and may have should have been. And I think that debate's going to go on forever and ever, as it probably should. But it's not as if we needed to upset the entire apple cart, just what I felt like, Professor, in an effort to make America look particularly bad. That's what I thought it was the effort of the Zin types were and 1619 to another extent. I thought it was I thought that actually came with more of a filtered lens than the than the than the stuff I was brought up on. That was my sense. I think that's probably true. I mean, and I I think that's true across a range of fields. Yeah. Like, I mean, but I mean, so I once debated the alt-right speaker, Jared Taylor, about the value of diversity. And I said, obviously, I think it's a good thing that the USA has, you know, Italians, Jews, you know, Mexican cuisine, so on down the line. And he's probably a white nationalist, though he didn't quite admit that, but he talked about the Anglo-American history of the country and so on. But, I mean, it struck me that Jared Taylor seems an honorable enough man, but he's obviously a bigot. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I find that objectionable, mm-hmm. a device, like being a drunkard. Sure. But, as opposed to just criticizing the hard right for 15 minutes, 
It also struck me that you hear stuff crazier than what Jared Taylor says all the time from the radical left. Yep. I mean, uh, yep. there's a tenured academic who goes by the name Professor Crunk, <laughs> who recently went on, I believe, CNN oh, and said yeah. things. Yeah. You saw this? Yeah. We might have to start exterminating yeah. these suckers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, so yeah. it, it's the same sort of thing here. I mean, like, yes. I think that in the South, in particular, there was some downplaying of slavery to be in sure. the textbook. To be yeah. sure, to be sure, there was an alternative view of the Civil War. There was, yes, of course, to be sure, there was. Yeah, uh, but the the point is, is that I don't necessarily think that is more inaccurate than Nicole Hannah Jones' right. view of the Civil right. War, where <laughs> right. Abe Lincoln right. is the worst right. kind of bigot right. and slavery is what made America rich. Right. Like, just to touch on that one for a second, sure. slavery was the mechanism of production only in the South, with the exception of parts of Maryland. Right. So, I mean, there, there were firms in the North that made some money off slave-produced goods, but when you talk about, like, the slaves built the roads and so on, that was only true where you had slaves. Yeah, a minority the, part of the country, by the way. I mean, the smaller part of the country. Yeah, and the problem with the argument that the national roadways and so on were laid out by slaves is that during the Civil War, the South fought extremely hard. So over five years, the North conquered the entire region and destroyed all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, all of the railroads in the South were ruined. I yeah. mean, they fought for all their flaws bravely. I mean, every building over two stories tall was burnt down. Yeah. Three yeah. stories tall. Yeah, but, Atlanta, I mean, so Atlanta the, ceased to exist for the most part. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, Sherman marched through Georgia and yeah. killed 100,000 people. So yeah. the, the claim that... The the wealth that grew up in the post-bellum USA somehow came from the devastated South is just not real, and no one that says that is a serious person. So I, I think we've moved from kind of the, oh, yeah, there were no Native Americans here when we got here, and the slaves were sitting on porches playing banjos, that kind of stuff. You know, so are the white guys in Kentucky, you know, the coal mines were a great place to work. You know, we've moved from that kind of thing on the margins to this, this sort of new form of nonsense, like oh. the things that defined our country yeah. were the Indian Wars and yeah. slavery. Like, not really. Yeah. Yeah. There. Yes. The, the, the revisionism shouldn't be replaced with revisionism. And um, all right. Fair enough. This was an interesting way to get to the topic I called you about originally. Wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the state of race and racism in America in light of or in the wake of Martin Luther King holiday. So we'll get we'll get more specifically onto that when we come back from the break. Professor Wilford Riley is our guest in numerous books on Amazon, all great, uh, including Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. Follow him on Twitter, too. Will underscore duh underscore beast 630. Just a fun, active and smart Twitter feed as well. Professor Riley and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Wilford Riley is our guest, uh, professor of political science at uh, Kentucky State University and uh, just prolific writer. Uh, every every time I turn my head, you have a new great essay uh, out. You have something in tablet we may be able to get to on political bias if we have time that I thought was really interesting. But. Professor, I, I did call you to ask you, uh, 44 years, do I have that right? 44 years after the path, death, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a lot of people claim the mantle. A lot of people you know, have their versions and histories of him. But 
where do you see the state of race and racism in America today, generally speaking, broadly speaking? I think it's 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 not something we tend to have enough honest conversations about, though everyone says we need to have honest conversations about them. Well, I think there are two parts to the narrative. I mean, the first is actual reality, which you'll see if, you know, your your kid plays some varsity football or you go down to the store or something. And then the, the second is media presentation. Race relations in the USA are actually extremely good. I mean, if anything, my group, I'm black, could do a little more to work on this than yours could. But both are both are fine by global standards. I mean, the 90% majority of both blacks and whites are fine with interracial marriage and so on down the line. Um, so the USA, there, there actually is a study, the World Values Study, where they ask people in you know countries of note. I don't know if they go to every small island, but you know the USA, Mexico, China, Canada, how they feel about basic racial questions. Like, would you object to living next door to a neighbor of another race, ethnicity, tribe? It's phrased in whatever the local vernacular would be. And every year, the USA is one of the five least racist countries on the planet. This is something that can be pretty easily checked by Googling USA World Values Survey, clicking on Google Images, USA Least Racist. Um, So that's the reality. Um, And again, I mean, there might be some teasing in a high school. I mean, black kids are sometimes accused of being bullies. White kids are sometimes accused of flaunting wealth, something like this. But I mean, the sports teams are integrated. The couples are fine. So without babbling much more, that's the reality. The, the interesting thing about this is that that is not at all how race relations are presented in the national mass media right. for whatever reason. Right. Um, the coverage of race relations, the few times I've looked at this for an academic article, is between 80 and 90 percent negative. And the focus is on these extraordinarily hostile, confrontational stories ranging from fistfights in parks over dog walking privileges and this sort of thing up to even more serious things like police shootings. Yeah. And this has a real effect on what people believe. So I think we discussed this once before. Actually, I think you brought it up, but a skeptic research center, the well-regarded kind of libertarian leading think tank actually sat down a bunch of people and asked them how many unarmed black men they think are shot annually by the police. Right. And at least for blacks and for white liberals, the figure was between 1,000 and 10,000. So it was something like about 30% of people said they thought it was about 1,000. You know, another within these categories, another 14.5% of people said they thought it was about 10,000. And 8% of people said that they thought it was more than that. And to put that in context, I mean, there are only about 20,000 murders in a typical year. Mm-hmm. And although we're only we're overrepresented, uh, only about half of them involve black people. So the the idea is that there are more police shootings of innocent black guys in a year than there actually are murders of black people if not all people in a year. So mm-hmm. you have the reality of race relations which is mostly pretty good. Yeah. And then you have this this public impression that 10,000 innocents are killed by the security forces every year. So that's And the number's closer the to like 20 or 22 or 3, right? I mean literally. That oh, yeah. that's about the yeah, stat, last year isn't was it? 7. Yeah, okay, 7. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah, it's it, the the entire Black Lives so just to throw some red sure. meat out there, the entire Black Lives Matter movement was based on a lie. I mean, we can debate the George Floyd case in particular, and even there George Floyd was on a large amount of drugs. I mean, he tested positive for methamphetamine, tested positive for oxycodone. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I myself spar in the dojo sometimes. I do think that once the officer noticed how far gone he was, there's probably a duty of care, a duty to get off him. To be sure. But the idea that Derek Chauvin would have killed Mr. Floyd with his knee had that not been the case, that that strikes me as wildly unlikely. And that that's frankly what every attorney I know off the record after a scotch thinks. But you can talk about a few horrific outlier cases. Sure. I mean, that video is tough to watch. Yeah. But the reality is that, as you said, in a typical bad year, the number of unarmed black men that are killed by white police officers is like 20. Um, I mean, the year before last year, when people were focusing really laser-like on this, let's stop the racial rioting, let's stop the political rioting, this is something you just can't do. But the year before that, which is just a typical year, was 18. Yeah. The year before that was 21. The year before that was 17. Yeah. So this was never a national problem. What happened is that certain vulture-like attorneys, took every single one of these cases and brought them very prominently into the national spotlight and called on friends in the media to, to cover the situation. So we weren't seeing the tip of the iceberg. We were seeing the whole iceberg plus some ambiguous cases. And this, this went on for years. And again, poison race relations. Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't know the World Values Survey. I was looking at some stuff Gallup did. Uh, for a history project I was working on, attitudes in the 50s versus attitudes, I don't know, 10 years ago okay. when I was doing this. It is an amazing trajectory this country went through when I'm working off memory, Professor, so forgive me if I'm off a little bit, but something like a pretty strong majority would have objected in the 1950s to a minority member. I think the question was specifically about blacks moving into the neighborhood or intermarriage. Um, and that number shrank to like within five point uh, to like five percent um, uh, ten years ago. I mean that trajectory is is really remarkable, and not one people would know, understand, or appreciate if all they did was get their information about race relations from most major networks these days. I suppose. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I mean, and, you know, both of us obviously slant toward the right. I have, I have a bit of a bias. But I mean, I, I think that's absolutely fair. And it's it's genuinely weird because one of the things about the, the thing about the civil rights movement, like the actual Dr. King civil rights movement, is that it was almost totally successful. Like blacks and whites together brought peaceful armies of thousands of people to the South and kind of broke Bull Connor, got him out of the courthouse door, Eisenhower sent soldiers. And this went on through Kennedy, this went on through Johnson, Civil Rights Act 1964. So this was a complete success. I mean, segregation ended in 1954, although enforcement took some time. Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. It's, it's actually illegal to be racist if you're in a boss role. That's right. Uh, since 1967, it's almost 60 years ago, we've had pro-minority affirmative action to a level where it's frankly kind of unfair. So all this happened, but the the general presentation of racial realities is sort of that it didn't at all, or that right. it was kind of a trick. Right, right, right. We have made no progress, or maybe we are, yes, or there are even superlatives being used about how bad it is now. Let me take a quick commercial break and come back on that, because there's a, there's, I was, I was talking about this uh, very issue with Larry Elder about two weeks ago about a speech Barack Obama gave when he was a senator 
Um, uh, let me bring it up with you on the other side of the break. Uh, I am Seth Leibson. He is Professor Wilford Riley. Check out his works on Amazon. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, The Hate Crime Hoax. Just a great, great mind alive. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Wilford Riley is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter at will underscore duh underscore beast 630. It's a fantastic feed. You'll learn a lot uh, and you'll have some fun as well. Uh, Professor, before I, I, I take on the speech that Barack Obama gave, uh, let me say one more thing about Martin Luther King and the success, at least from the perspective I see it from. When I go back, I've studied his speeches and writings for years. I've just always, always found him just tremendously uh, impactful, and and I've always, I, I've always loved him from a young age. And um, one of the things that I think is interesting, I wonder what your take on this is, if you agree. You know, he got or helped move this country with a message that really could unite this country about our founding. I mean, almost every speech on civil rights he gave invoked the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and as a positive thing, not as a racist document, but as a magnificent document. He he could make all Americans feel invested in our founding, let us say. Maybe that's the way I want to put it. And it seems to me that that worked then, and the effort seems now to be quite the opposite. And surprise, surprise, we see these elites having such contempt um, for the founding at, while they're trying to rip off these Band-Aids that – or really uh, salves that we had achieved after a lot of bloody and verbal and legal work. I don't know if I'm making sense in my point, but he had a uniting theme that I thought was magical that it seems to me much of the civil rights activists today have abandoned and might help explain some of why we aren't maybe at the mountaintop we all thought we should be. I don't know if there's anything yeah, in there. And, and again, in, in practical terms, I think if you go to a football practice, we are at that. Yeah, okay, top. fair like the, enough. The, fair no, enough. I'm, not, I'm not like correcting or criticizing you. I'm just saying the actual, the actual level of bias between Protestants and Catholics or Christians and Jews or blacks and whites or any of the other groups King talked about in this country is extraordinarily low. So it's, it's being kept alive. And the question of who's keeping it alive is actually a very fascinating one. But, I mean... No, I, I think you're right. There, there's a, there's an extraordinary. Everyone can unite direct- around our founding. In other words, was his view. At least I think that was his view. Yeah. Everyone could unite around, and you get it. You, you understand no, that, what I'm that, trying to say. That's right. Yeah, there, there's a direct difference between the civil rights colorblind perspective and the CRT, for want of a better word, perspective. Mm-hmm. So what Dr. King was saying is America is a good world leading country. I have one problem with America, and that is that to some extent you haven't let blacks and maybe Jews and maybe women participate fully in the glory of the USA. You haven't so lived up to your promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you sign this here law? I mean, that, that was one of his pitches to yep. Kennedy, this promissory yep. note, yep. so that the black business class, women, women were, you know, finagled into the Civil Rights Act, so on, so that all these other people can take their seats at the table. And Kennedy and Johnson, you know, I'm sure with some profanity used, said, okay, and that was that was the civil rights pitch. It was very simple. This is overall a good country. It's not perfect because only heaven is perfect. But okay, here's a bill that says blacks and whites can't fight anymore, and everyone can vote. Can we all sign this? And you know, the Anglo guy and the Irish guy and the black guy said, "Yeah, and they did." 
So that's the, that's the civil rights take. Like, okay, now things are reasonably good. Let's go play some football and apply for some jobs and sales. I mean, like, that. that is, I'm being glib, but that is what most people thought of as the solution to the problem and what I think of as the solution to the problem today. And the wasn't critical, it, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, the critical race theory approach is something very different that comes from this niche sort of dorm room bull session environment that asks all these questions like, I remember in a freshman year philosophy class, the professor asked, how do we know we exist? Yeah. And I actually just didn't come to the class for the next week to make a point. Mm -hmm. And when I showed up, the professor, who was kind of like a stern old teacher in his ways, asked, why weren't you here? What the hell? And I was like, how do you know? Yeah. And, you know, he made some jokes and we went on. But the basic point is that there is an obvious reality. Academics tend to sometimes disregard it. That's what CRT is. So the idea of CRT is how do we know that the systems that make up our country aren't somehow influenced by the racist whiteness of the founders? So whereas King is saying, give me a seat at the table because I think that I can write a law or make a sale as well as anybody else, what a crit would say is, well, the basic idea of writing laws or making sales or being on time is influenced by cisgendered patriarchal right. whiteness. Right. So we need to tear down the entire system and replace it with some nonsense that I made up yesterday. Yeah. So I, I have trouble even taking this seriously, but I'm obviously I, I side with King that once you pass the law saying everyone's equal and you start enforcing it, then you're you're done with that. Yeah, that stage that, that, that's where I was going to go with you. And it sets up. This was a short segment. We'll finish this in a longer one in the next uh, one i'll take the quick break but that's exactly you led me where i wanted to go uh with this point larry elder was making about a speech barack obama gave let me let me now take this break and we'll pick that up when we come right back professor wilford riley kentucky state university is our uh, guest and he and i'll be right back To the Seth Liebson Show, Professor Wilford Riley, Kentucky State University, has been our guest this hour talking about um, uh, really the aftermath of the and, and the current math, I suppose, of where America is in, in light of um, yesterday's holiday and commemoration of Martin Luther King's works and life. So, Professor, I, I just wonder where the presidency of Barack Obama plays into this in exacerbating or or even healing some of the regnant or lagging racism in this country, and not from not from the things we might point to that he may have done or said that kind of pushed buttons. But Larry Elder likes to talk about a speech he gave at the Edmund Pettus Bridge when he was a senator, and he gave this speech where he said, we are the Joshua generation, the Moses generation of King got us 90% there, we have perhaps 10% more of the way to go, and it will be we, the Joshua generation, that gets us there. That was the essence of Barack Obama's speech circa, uh, well, maybe two or three years before he's elected president. So maybe two, two, 2006, let's say, 2007. And what Larry Elder was saying to me, he says, wouldn't you think if there's 10% left, wouldn't you think his presidency or his twice being elected to the presidency – cuts into that 10 percent pretty substantially, if not, you know, maybe almost all the way there. And did a civil rights industry, so-called professor, then find that they needed another elder phrase, maybe it's a phrase of yours too, 
that the demand really right. was outweighing the supply. Can you put some of that together for me or correct me if I have this wrong? Actually, I think the guy that said that was the distinguished black academic Tucker Carlson. Oh. Um, <laughs> when, I was talking, when I was talking to him back in like I'd rather quote Larry or you, but okay. All no, right. no, but right. Solid, solid member of the community. <laughs> but no, I mean, but in, in all seriousness, though, I mean, the basic point itself is obviously, I mean, this is my specialty is quantitative methods. It's obviously mathematically accurate. I mean, if a guy with an Ivy League law degree says, okay, if you look at the number of hate crimes or something like that, racism's declined ninety percent. And then three years later, he's elected president. Okay, what? We're at ninety-five percent decline or something like that. Yeah, this this is actually about what I would estimate mm-hmm. that if you have a mappable variable like racism is what I'd call it mm-hmm. that can go from one to a hundred. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent of people can be bigots that say, you know, no blacks or whites or Irishmen or whatever in my family tree. Right. Or zero percent of people can say that. And right now we're at about ninety four percent of both whites and blacks that don't say that. Right. So, yeah, about ninety five percent there. Um, so the question, I guess, is why is there this obsessive focus on the five percent? And that yeah. brings us back to the question of who benefits from that. Okay. And I do think. That on, yeah, on the extreme left, and now to some extent on the alt-right, you yep. do have people that make pretty substantial livings from doing so. I mean, it's what Sean King going to do or Al Sharpton or the entire staff of The Root if racial comedy, you know, comes tomorrow. Right. So now that's become almost a cliche, and I think we both agree on it. So I'll say one other thing. Barack Obama actually strikes me as having kind of missed his Nixon in China moment. Yeah, yeah. Because... All Barack Obama had to do was stand up and say, look, everybody stop fighting. I'm black and I'm the president. I'll blow up the world if you idiots don't stop. I mean, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, like the the age of the old wars, as I call them, conflicts between blacks, whites, natives, so on is over. I'm half black. I'm half white. I'm in the Oval Office. Let's work on fixing a few class issues like what's happening in Appalachia. And then let's work on, you know, kicking China's butt, let's say. Yeah. That was what he should have done, and eighty percent of blacks, ninety percent of whites, everyone would have been cool with that. What he said, in, what he said instead, was my son would look just like Trayvon. Yeah, like he kept getting into these mayor level racial issues. The Skip Gates thing with the it. Cambridge cop. I can't remember his name, but I remember Professor. All that stuff, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly the one I was thinking of. Yeah, like a. Two guys who later became, like, beer-drinking buddies. Yeah. Like, this was a nothing issue. Right. But, like, a professor and, like, the deputy chief of police right. got into an argument because the professor kicked in his window yeah. when he got home late from a business trip. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, like, the the city commissioner of Cambridge should have handled with buying both men a steak dinner. Yeah. Barack Obama got involved and started talking about how, you know, it's, I know what it's like to be black in a situation like this. Like, my guy, if you're white and you're having, like, a domestic dispute with your wife or something, and you stand in front of a half-million-dollar house and you kick in the dormer window, like, the cops are going to come talk to you. This is, this is a non-issue of all non-issues. But he kept jumping into these cases, Trayvon Martin, Michael yep. Brown, yep. and saying these things like, I don't mean to be rude to you know Mr. Martin, what happened to Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman is tragic. Two guys got in a fight, one had a pistol, it's all too common. But Barack Obama's son wouldn't have looked anything like Trayvon Martin. Like Barack Obama went to Harvard. There's right. no chance his son is dressed in hip-hop gear, right. rocking the hoodie, right. you know, yeah. out at two in the morning, you know. Right. 
brawl with this Latino guy. I mean, not that race really plays that much of a role. So it's it, that sort of stuff kept happening. And you have to wonder whether it's because President Obama felt the need to signal that he was black. Mm -hmm. Like, he wasn't some ruling class immigrant with a white mother who went to the Ivy League. He was, you know, a brother. Barack Obama's from Chicago, by the way. He casually knows some people I know. And this has been a big part of his story, if you read his book. Like, Mm -hmm. him seeking out revolution on campus, like dating, like, bisexual punk rock feminists and so on, and trying to be, like, a real city kid and a particular real black guy. And this is the dude whose stepfather was an Indonesian general. And with a lot of these politicians and a lot of rich kids in general, you want to just say, just, just accept it. You're, yeah. you're a prince. Just accept it. Go be a good prince. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if, you know, it wasn't his thoughts about race that led him there, but really his maybe internal philosophical leftism, and he used race as the way to apply that leftism. I mean, he did come from a fairly left-wing orientation, at least at some portions of his life and upbringing in academic study. And I wondered if if maybe, you know, the way to hit America, the way to kind of lower lower the notion of American exceptionalism in, a, I don't know, in our vernacular today, maybe American greatness, race was the way to do that. I, I Hard to say. My, I'm just speculating, but it was a thought I had as you were speaking. Because he, well, I, I don't know if I'd go the. I mean, like you know, I'm on the right. I've watched them Dinesh D'Souza documentaries yeah, yeah, yeah. in my life. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would go the. Like I don't really think so. Okay. I mean, Barack Obama strikes me as an intelligent guy, but yeah. like when people talk about like Barry from like the yeah. you know, Honolulu yeah. High basketball yeah. team, yeah. I don't really think he's sitting around having deep post-colonial thoughts. That, <laughs> okay, you know, like, okay, all right. The, the West must fall. <laughs> all right. I, I, actually, <laughs> I actually think that, I, I will say, though, that there's a subtle poison, a subtler version of that, because I mean, his family did know Frank Marshall Davis. Yep. But there's, there's a subtler version of that that just going to prep school in Honolulu in yeah. the 70s would give you. Yeah, that's that true, too. almost every... Yeah upper-middle-class Western yeah. kid gets. And it, yeah. it's insane to say this, yeah. because it, there's no equivalent in China. But the idea that your society is wrong, there's something flawed, like, even the idea that, like, the ideal wife would be, like, a bisexual punk rocker that would challenge the system with you. Like, that strikes me as a very fun girlfriend, but when I think, like, <laughs> mom, that's not necessarily the number one requirement. You know, it's, but this is something that's become very, very common. It's kind of a... A creeping, mild form of evil that's hip and fun that we don't even notice, but that's very socially destructive. And I, I do think that playing playing to those bona fides was a big part of Obama. Okay. Or like he couldn't leave the local city council level race case yeah, alone yeah. because that would mean he wasn't a rebel or he wasn't a black man. Yeah. And you kind of want to sit some of these guys down and say, I mean, it's another, like Swalwell, in terms of, like, if you ever heard a yeah. story about how he wind up on a sexual affair with a Chinese spy, right. you want to sit some of these guys down and say, like, you're a senator. You're not supposed to be edgy and rebellious. You're supposed to be very boring and well-armed. <laughs> and you're supposed to be prepared to discuss, you know, the pork bellies bill. Like, yeah, right. It, it, it's a unique Western sickness, and Obama had a stronger case of it than most. Professor, we are out of time. I could do hours and hours with you. I always love our visits, and I appreciate your always willingness to uh, share your time and brain with us, sir. Thank you very, very, very much.
Well, as always, thanks a lot for having me it's on. It's not talking. too late. Happy New Year. Professor Wilford Riley, folks, uh, R-E-I-L-L-Y. I am Seth Liebson, and uh, I'll be back with one final word. Thank you. If you are looking for an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market, check out Y-Refi. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed rate of return up to 10.25%. That's right, up to 10.25%. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. And you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. You know, I was just thinking about that conversation with Professor Riley. And, you know, there's not a lot like him. There's not a lot of people that have, you know, the academic and intellectual skills that he does or it, it – anywhere i mean it is it is a it is a supple and, and 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 good mind and then you know you take it one step further there's not a lot it's an even smaller category of people who are willing to say things as he puts it slightly to the right or slightly right of center and then you slice it down even more narrowly when you consider he's going up against a lot of the taboos within the issue of race and especially in a community uh, to which he belongs. And you just think, you know, but without people like that, we'd be lost. We'd be lost. And how precious and rare these great, great, um, great uh, thinkers are. And um, why I think it's important to support them in all they do. So do check out his books. Buy them. Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime fo- Hoax, How the Left is Still Selling a Fake Race War. And uh, follow him on Twitter. Send his stuff around. Um, You know, we get by with a little help from our friends, but there are very few friends. We have very few friends. uh, And we're barely getting by. So nurture them. Nurture them and teach them as you teach your children well, too. Well, God bless you all. Until tomorrow, thank you very much. I am Seth, and class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.